during his last lecture to the disciples, Jesus said, okay, he wanted his disciples to love one another the way the Father and the Son loved each other. Yes or no? Yes, he did say that. Okay, we're going to see it this morning in John 17 that we're supposed to love even as the Father and Son. He, did he say his disciples would suffer excommunication, even death because of him? Got a 50-50 chance. Yes, he did. He said that he would be able to do, that we would be able, the disciples, do greater works than he did while on earth. Yes, he did say that in this whole lecture that he gives in John 13 through 17. He said he would not pray at that time for lost people. He did say that at that time, in that moment, he wasn't going to pray for the world. Okay? He was praying for us, not just his disciples at that time. He was praying for future disciples, yes or no. He did. He says, I'm praying for those who yet to become into the fold. We believe, he says that we believers are God's gift to Jesus. Hmm, yes, no, maybe so. He does say it in John 17. He does say, you are God's gift to, to me. <clears throat> Oops, some will kill believers thinking this is a service to God. Yes, that's, that's going to happen. He said that Judas was lost so that Scripture could be fulfilled. Yeah, he's going to make that statement. He's going to make a whole bunch of these statements. Let's talk about it. We're in John chapter 15, verse 16. If you're just joining us for today or just you've ju you jumped in this summer because you're in the area <clears throat> and the snowbirds have come back this way, whatever, we are at this last week of the Passion, okay? We're, we're wrapping up that life of Christ in his very last few days. This is the night of the Last Supper. He has celebrated the meal with the disciples. It's a Thursday evening. It's called your Passover meal. He has washed their feet. He's identified the betrayer. Judas has walked out of the room. Jesus tells him, I'm going to leave. They're all distraught and upset. And he says, well, listen, to help you out, I'm going to leave. I'm going to talk about paradise, power, prayers, paraclete, and peace. And he gives them all these promises. Then he goes on and leaves the room and en route to Gethsemane he continues his teaching. Some of the teaching that he does is in chapter 15, 16, and 17 is his prayer and along the way he gives that message about the vine and the branches. Along the way he talks about you are no longer, you know, you're, you're not just like servants, you're my friends. And then he starts after he gives all this positive about I'm going to help you, he talks about a negative and they're walking through the streets, he's, they don't fully understand and he gives them this part of the lecture. Where in John 15, jumped down to verse 18. He says, uh, verse 17, these things command I unto you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, and if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they would keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they had no cloak for their sin. He that hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not sinned. You do realize when he says that twice, they had not sinned. He's not saying they'd be sinless. He's saying they wouldn't be what? What about their sin? What's that? Accountable? Okay. I, I, let's put two things. Awareness and accountability. 
That's what he means when he says they had not sinned. It's the idea that they, it's not that those people, you know, that don't know the truth are, are totally held innocent. Okay? Innocence of the law is what do we say in our society. It's no excuse. Okay, you're still held accountable. And so, and you've had that experience. Well, I never saw that speed, that speed sign. And the officer says, it doesn't make any difference. It was posted. Whether you saw it or not, it was still the law. And so Jesus isn't saying, yeah, these people are without sin. He's saying they wouldn't realize their sinfulness. So he said, if I had not come done among them the works which another man did, they had not known their sin is the idea. But now have they both seen and hated both me and the Father. But this comes to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written, they hate me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, that I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he's going to testify of me. And you shall also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not... What's your Bible read? My King James says, not, shall not be offended. Anybody have another translation? Not stumbled. Good, good. That's the idea. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think he is doing What? He's doing service to God. These things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them and these things I said unto you at the beginning because I was with you. And now I go my way to him that sent me and none, and none of you dares ask, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things, you have sorrow filled in your heart. Let's just dissect a little bit of that. What he's going to do is he's already talked about in verses 15 and 17 in John 15. He's talked about the idea that we are in a special relationship with God the Father. That we're more than just servants. We're friends. Remember he used that analogy. He says the king doesn't tell his he's still the Lord over his close friends but he tells them what he's going to do. They're his advisors, his confidants if you would. And he says we are in that relationship with Jesus Christ. But even though we're in this relationship that makes us tighter with Jesus Christ than, than um, in most situations, he's going to make it clear that you're not going to be loved by everybody. The Father loves you, but the people that you're going to go out and minister to, they are not going to give you a band and a parade and say, yay, yay, we're so glad you came. Now, there will be some that will do that in response to the gospel, but he's going to put them into a reality check that basically says, guys, I'm sending you out, and the world is not going to be excited to see you. They are not beating down the doors to hear what you have to say because what you're going to say is not going to make them feel comfortable. What you're going to say is going to make them feel guilty, and so they're not going to be excited about it. And so he's going to tell them... In in fact, you're going to be hated by the world. And he's using strong terms here. They're not just going to ignore you. They're going to be aggressively, actively coming after you. And so he tells them, and the comment that he's making here is very interesting when he's talking about the world is going to hate you. They hated me before, but they hated you. The idea is that while I was here, all of their animosity was directed towards me. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees were upset, they would come against me. They might engage you to say, why does your master do this? Why does your master do that? But they are actually after me. When I leave, I'm not going to buffer the opposition. I'm not going to be here. You're going to get it directly. I'm not going to shield you anymore. You're going to become the object of their venom like I have been the object of their venomous attacks. And they're going to come after you. And he's giving them this information. They're already upset. They're already, remember he's had to say twice, let not your heart be what? 
troubled. They're already upset. And now he adds this bombshell that you're going to be persecuted. And it's going to be like nothing you've ever experienced before. And so he's telling them that because he's telling them the truth. He's getting them prepared. And he's going to tell them, he says, some of these people will be so aggressive and their aggression is based upon they think they are serving God by trying to kill you. Can you think of anybody in the Bible that that was absolutely true of? The Apostle Paul, before he got saved, he thought he was doing service for God and that he was establishing his own righteousness by killing off the believers. And he was very, very uh, aggressive in that activity. So he's telling them basically a couple things. He says the persecution that you're going to face, it's a sure thing. It's absolutely a positive thing. In fact, in these verses we read, he mentions hate seven times. Key word. The idea is that they're going to be really, really uh, against you. It is really serious because of the hatred, but also if you watch in the words and go through, they hate, they hate, they hate. They will physically persecute in one way or another, and then there's going to be excommunication even unto death. And by the way, excommunication in Jewish society is a whole lot different than what some of us would have experienced. Excommunication in Jewish society would be kicked out of the synagogue. Your family can't do business with you. They're not supposed to eat with you. So it's an isolation. It's very, very severe socially, family-wise. Families could depart from one another. They could separate. They could uh, dissolve the marriage because of the excommunication. So you could lose everything in that Jewish culture. And he says you could even lose your life. So he's giving them a reality that it's really, really, really difficult. And he says, what I'm doing is I'm telling you this so that you would not be offended. The word is that you would not stumble. Why would people stumble if he doesn't tell them? Why do you think he says it this way? I'm telling you so you don't fall flat on your face. Because if he didn't tell them, what, would, what would, could be a possibility? They would fall. Why? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, Jesus, here, let's put yourself in their sandals. Jesus resurrects in a few days, okay? After he dies, he resurrects. They go from absolute dismal and dismay to what? Yeah, euphoric view. Jesus is here. Jesus is back. Everything's going to be okay now. And he's, gonna, he's trying to tell them that everything's not going to be okay from the, from the horizontal point of view. There's going to still be difficulties. Yes, I will come back to life. Yes, you'll have power. Yes, you'll have the Holy Spirit. But you're going to have persecution on top of this. And so he's giving them the idea that not everything is going to be peaches and, and roses and there's going to be difficulties so that when it comes, you don't do what? Oh man, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. This is what I signed up for. You know, how, you know how sometimes you get a job and the person who's selling you the job gives you everything great about it, all the benefits, all the bonuses, and then three weeks into the job you find out, yeah, it's a terrible job, and those bonuses and benefits won't come until 20 years down the road. Okay, do you ever have those things? Oh, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, I have a car I want to sell you. And I tell you everything great about this car and how fabulous it is and how fast it can be. But I don't tell you that it's got leaky seals, you know, and that there's a major problem. And all, and all of a sudden you get disappointed because you bought this car and you say, he, he gave me a raw deal. He wasn't honest about it. And so you have those situations. And Jesus is being very, very open with his disciples, honest with his disciples, and saying, Christianity, when you sign up for Christianity, there's some tough parts about it. I've heard some young people talk about, hey, military, you should sign up for the military. There's all kinds of benefits with the military. And there are, aren't there? Okay, you could get some benefits as far as 
career training. You can get some benefits for assistance with school. If you're in the, for a period of time, you can get some, some benefits. But they're, they're talking about it and they're saying about all the benefits and it's really not that hard. Yeah, and then what happens? You get to boot camp and you go, I never realized how dumb I was. Okay, I never heard anybody talk about my mother that way before. And all of a sudden, there's this shock. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be shocked. You're in my army. I'm telling you. I care for you. It's going to be tough. If you sign up to follow me, there is going to be some difficulties. That's why he has said previously, take up your cross. Okay, it, Christianity isn't for, for the weak and the, the, those who want vacation and holiday type thing. Christianity is warfare. And he's telling them right up front. He says, okay, I don't want you to collapse. I don't want you to fall. Now, at the same time, is there a lot of benefits with Christianity? Oh, my word, yes. They, they last for how long? Yeah, forever. Okay, but to get to the forever moment, there's going to be some rough spots. And so he's telling them that. He's making it clear. But he concludes in this whole section by telling them, by the way, with all the rough spots you're going to have, I want you to realize, down in verse 33, these things have I spoken unto you in chapter 16, in that, that in me you might have what? I mean, he's talking about all kinds of persecution. And then he says, but this is what I want you to have in the midst of it. What is it? Peace. Oh, peace, that is stability. That is, we're going to make it all the way through. In fact, he not only says you can have peace, but look at the rest of verse 33. In the world you're going to have what? But be of good... Yeah, really? Yeah, be of good cheer because I've overcome. And so he's giving them, he's saying, despite all the difficulties from the outside, from the inside... You can manage this. You can do this and you can have a peace. You can have a joy that passes all understanding. Okay, and so he's telling them all that. Now, he, in this section, he also gives the reasons. This is important. Why is there going to be such animosity against the believers, against the apostles and those that they recruit? Well, there's a couple of reasons they're given in this text. Down in the, in the chapter, he talks about the re, one of the reasons why they're going to have the animosity in chapter 15 is because they follow him. The world hates you because they hated me. You're my follower, therefore whatever stuck to me, it's going to stick to you. He points out that you're not of this world. Look at verse 19 where he says that I have chosen you to be out of this world. That is, you're not going to be taken and raptured right now, but you're going to live in it, but you're not supposed, you're going to be in the world, but not of the world. You're going to be different. You're going to be different. And so some of the opposition comes because if you're a real believer, do you talk different than other people? Yes. Well, you're supposed to anyway, right? Okay. Do you have a different value than a lot of people? Yeah? Okay, as a believer, in what other ways might you be different? You go to church. Okay, you're going to be into praying. Anything else that makes believers different than the world? What's that? How you raise your kids. Yeah. How you show the charity. What about, what about jokes you tell? What about the way you respond in situations? What about, what about when somebody does you evil, you do them good, and that irritates some people? Okay, we're supposed to be different, okay? And so let me throw this, throw this up. What is the common response to people who are different than the norm? Somebody, let me, let me just be blunt about it, okay? Somebody may not 
look like the rest because they have an impairment of some sort. What is the typical response of the crowd? Do, do, they, do people kind of step back? Okay. Yeah, or at least limited, limited contact, right? Okay, somebody comes into a region. Okay, let's, let's take somebody comes in and they're different in their... Um, can happen. We're, we're more of a mixed community that we're getting used to it. But was there, was there, is there some place in the world that different color of people makes an isolation? Okay. Uh, has there ever been animosity shown towards people of different color? Different language? Okay. Different, different um, hair color? Different dress? Okay. And so, you know, it happens. Hey, do you ever read the story of this fellow? His name is Jonas Hannaway. He's the one who invented the umbrella. And he, he was in London, invented the umbrella, and he's walking down the street with his new invention after he's getting it patented. The crowds were so shocked by somebody having this umbrella that they picked up stones and they stoned him because he was doing something so strange and so odd. Aren't you glad for umbrellas? Okay, it's a tool. But because it was unusual, usually the first of things people react against, yes? Okay, and so that happens, and Jesus is warning. He says, you're going to be different. And he goes on, he makes that comment again, verse 20, that idea that the servant's not greater than the master. What they do to the servant, they do to the, uh, to the master, they'll do to the servants. He also points out, we stopped and paused when we read in verse 21, and he says it a couple times. He says that, that, if I, that uh, he, the, the reason that they, don't, they won't appreciate them is that they really don't know the one that sent him. They really don't know God, okay? And they don't, they don't believe in God. Now, oh, now, wait a minute. The Bible says that the devils also believe. Do they have the same belief that you do? No, why not? What's the difference between the devil's belief? Does he believe there's a God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, there's a fact. Do a lot of unsaved people have, have the, up here, there is a God? Yeah, yeah. What's the difference then? They tremble, one. By the way, even, even the devils believe there is a God and they tremble because they see him in his greatness. Okay, But here you have, the, somebody said it already, the big difference between a lot of people say, I believe in God is their lack of trust. Okay, They aren't putting their full trust in God. Um, <clears throat> we'll show you this evening some of the things that we saw in Portugal that were just absolutely amazing. Some of the things, they celebrated the 100th anniversary just this past month of that visions in the city of Fatima, if you remember the story, in May 13th of, 19, of 1917, three children, the Virgin Mary appeared above a tree, and then every 13th of the month from May to October gave extra visions. One of the statements that Mary gives, and I'll show it to you this evening, and I'm going to try to quote it right now, and I'm going to mess it up, but she basically says, through my immaculate heart, you can come to God, and I will give you shelter and refuge. Does that sound blasphemous to you? Absolutely. It's a very anti-scriptural. But I was telling the kids when we were standing there in the cathedral, if you want a man-made religion that's impressive by appearance, it looks good. The glitter and the gold looks fabulous. And by the way, it's a very accommodating religious system because you can basically live any way you want and, you know, we used to say it when we grew up in that, in that faith, we'd live like the devil for six days and go to church on Sunday and get it all taken care of. So it's a very accommodating type of belief that, that we can do whatever we want and then somebody else is going to you know, bail us out later on. 
you know, and then we'll get out, and all of us will eventually get bailed out in eternity because we'll get out of that mini hell called purgatory for a period of time. And so that idea that he's saying, okay, here he comes, and we're going to present truth, and some people won't like the truth because they have a different, whole different image and a whole different idea of how to get to heaven. They have a whole different view of God. They have a whole different view of what he's like. And he's saying, wait a minute, I brought them news of God, and when I told them about God, they didn't like it. Because their view of God and my view of God were totally different. They saw God in a way that they could, they could satisfy him by their own deeds, their own works, and he was going to tolerate everything. And he comes and he says, wait a minute, you have to repent or you end up where? You end up in hell. So Jesus had a different view. And he goes on and he makes these comments. Now, here's the question I have. Why did these people, in Acts chapter 10, we read that he went about, this is the description of Jesus by one of the apostles. He said he went about doing, anybody remember the phrase? He went about doing good. He constantly was doing good for other people. Such as what? The crowds there, they, they drew to him because what good things did he do for the people? He fed them. He healed them. Did he comfort them? Did he give them hope? Okay, so Jesus was doing all this good. How do you hate somebody who does good? How do you get upset? What, envy? Okay, there was some of that. There was. So when we ask the question, why did they hate him so much? Let's just throw out a couple possibilities. Because they don't know. They didn't know him that sent Jesus. Again, we're going back to that idea that they had their own view of God. In fact, Jesus even said of those people, they are of their father, the devil. So they had a different view of God. They were jealous of Jesus. They were opposed to him. They established their own righteousness. And so he revealed, one of the things that he did is he revealed openly their sin. He makes that comment here. He says, when I came, if I had not come, they had not sinned. And again, I mentioned that. The idea is they wouldn't have realized their sinfulness. And so as Jesus comes, all of a sudden his, his goodness is light in a dark spot. And what, what gets shown? Their own evil, their own hearts, their own envy. In fact, what were the Pharisees so, so protective of? What, what did they want? Power. 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 And Jesus is just revealing time and again, did he put the spotlight on their greed? Yes or no? Did he put the spotlight on their inconsistencies? Their lack of compassion. Oh, man. Their, their manipulation of rules and regulations to benefit themselves. Did he ever go, there it is. These guys, they do stuff that is so hypocritical. And he time and time again, and they were upset with him, and the crowds were gathering to him. He, he revealed their sin. They didn't like it. And there is a fact. He revealed God to them the way that God was. Do you remember the statement made by Nicodemus when he says, no man can do the things which you do except God be with him or God sent him. Did, they, did some of them get it that he came from God? Yes, but did they accept it? Did they, did they embrace it? Mm -hmm. So Jesus is going to be hated because of what he is. Now, now think with this, think with me. If they hated Jesus because they didn't know the Father, if they hated Jesus because his conduct and his words revealed their sin, if they hated Jesus because they reveal a God that these people weren't happy with, if they hated Jesus for those very reasons, when you go and share the gospel, what might they do to you? They might hate you. They might resist you. Why? Because of the very same things. 
You might be pointing out even the way you live. Even the way you don't. Have ever, any of you ever had this? The way you don't cuss frustrates some coworkers. The way you don't participate in some of the dirty tales come Monday mornings. That makes them a little bit uncomfortable. And you're not doing it because you're better than them. You're not doing it because you want to be pompous and arrogant. You just silently go about your business, but you don't participate. Your lack of participation makes them feel uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, they're angry at you and saying, you think you're better than us. You've never said that. You've never tried that. You've tried to extend yourself and be gracious. Then why do they think that about you? Why do some of your relatives get mad at you? Because they are feeling convicted and guilt. And that happens. By the way, some of us did that to, uh, to the believers before we got saved. We did that same thing. I remember when I, we were growing up in Owatonna, Minnesota, there was a Bible college right there in town. And our common response to the Bible college students there at Pillsbury was we call them Bible bangers. We would call them all kinds of names. And what really, and I remember my parents driving down the street and talking about those kids walking down the street. And, you know, my dad was crass enough that he'd yell out the window and make fun of them. And he never got a response back. They just, they, they didn't yell back. They didn't pick up stones and throw them at it, you know, throw them at the car. I would have, but they didn't. And my dad may come. I remember this as a vivid memory, one of those childhood memories, just like those guys think they're better than the rest of us. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? He's the one yelling out the window. He's the one doing the attacking. They never said a word to him. Then what in the world compelled him to be so obnoxious and to attack? Do you think there is conviction? Does that ever happen that somebody who's under conviction responds with animosity? Yeah, in fact, who do we have in Scripture again? Who do we have in Scripture that when he was under such deep conviction, he became the more arrogant and the more anima, uh, greater with animosity? Who is it? Saul went about doing what? Killing the people. And so Jesus is warning his disciples, this is going to happen. Now, how do you cope with this? And that's what he gets into the passage, which is really important. He again makes comment. This, this is kind of, now, you watch through John 14, 15, 16, 17. He does this time again. He's talking, and all of a sudden he drops in, Holy Spirit's going to be with you. Talk some more. Holy Spirit's going to be with you. Talk some more. Holy Spirit's going to be with you. And so your theology of the Holy Spirit, you have to go through and grab a whole bunch of different statements made throughout his entire conversation because he doesn't lecture the way you and I would lecture. You and I would lecture by saying, let's give everything about the Holy Spirit at this one moment, and he doesn't do that. He intersperses several different times conversation about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about persecution. The first thing he uh, tells them, he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to help you during the persecution. We've already read it down in verse 26. Right in the middle of this, he says, but when I've gone, the comforter, the one who's going to help you, strengthen you, the, the prop that that holds up the wall that's starting to fall down. The, um, in your basement, all of a sudden you got a sag in the beam and you put one of those metal posts or a wooden post right there to help prop it up. That's a paracletos. 
That's the idea that he's, he's helping you. He's giving you extra help. You, you've got tendonitis. You've got, a, you've got carpal tunnel going. You know, and you say, okay, it's getting weak. So you put that brace on to just kind of re, you know, reaffirm, re-strengthen or on your knee. That's a paracletos. It is something that just strengthens, that holds things together, that provides the support. He says, that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do to you. So in the middle of all the persecution, remember, I haven't abandoned you. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. I think that's critical at this moment. People aren't recognizing the truth. They don't see God for who he is. He says, but the spirit of truth is going to be with you. The one that will really broadcast and point and be the spotlight. And he says that his job is going to point everybody to Jesus Christ. He's going to help you and while you live, he's going to spotlight Jesus Christ. So you are going to be a light and you're going to end up through the Holy Spirit's empowerment showing people Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. And so he gives them that information, that gives them that help. And then he makes a very, sta- very clear statement in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, here's what I want you to do. He's already mentioned verse 27, be a witness. Despite the persecution, I want you to be a witness. I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to stumble. I want you to remain faithful in the middle of the problem. Even though the persecution will get severe, even though it's going to come sooner than later, even though it's going to come from the religious realms, even though it's going to come from family and friends, I want you to remain faithful. I want you to endure and your endurance will help you to reach out. He's taking us right back to the very basic um, responsibility we have. Share Christ. Share Christ. Share Christ. Not just Folk, not just enjoying Jesus and coming in church and being gathered together and it's like, okay, let's celebrate Jesus, which we should do. But he's saying, you've got to be sharing Christ. You've got to be giving him out to the world. This is your job. And the world may not like it, but you still have to do it. And I'm going to give you the spirit to help you to do it. And so he's giving them that encouragement. Then from there, all of a sudden, he makes a few other statements that sometimes people look and say, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it does in context. What he does in verses 3, 4, 5, 6 of chapter 16, he makes comment, and he says again, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go back to him that sent me. And he's making it very clear, I'm leaving here very soon. I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be going. Well, we understand he's going to be going in the ascension in a matter of weeks. We understand that these people didn't understand. And he makes comment to him. He says, you have questions that you don't dare ask. In other words, they've, they've heard, but they don't want to ask anything more. They've heard it several times, and it's, it's in their mind. We don't get it. Where are you going? And we can't go with you. Why do you say you're going to be leaving? And I don't understand. And every time we ask a question, we feel more foolish because we show that we are just dense. And so they don't want to ask ask anything, but he makes a comment. He says, and by the way, I know exactly what you're feeling. Look at where he says it down here. He said in verse 6, sorrow is filling your heart. I know what you're going through. I understand that all these feelings that you're overwhelmed. And he says, I want to give you some help and some hope in the middle of all this. How are you going to face what I'm telling you? And what does he do? Look at verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Who does he talk about one more time? Who do you have? the Holy Spirit. And he goes back one more time. He gives them more details about the Holy Spirit. Do you get the impression from Jesus' teachings that he puts a whole lot more emphasis on the Holy Spirit than we do? That the Holy Spirit is a critical part of our walk and yet we don't talk much about him. Why is it that we don't teach our kids how to be filled with the Spirit? When's the last time you had a conversation with your kids that you need the filling of the Holy Spirit? 
Some of the reason that we in our circles don't talk about the Holy Spirit is because those others who have abused and gone nuts with the Holy Spirit were afraid to be associated with them. Just because some group has gone banana crazies about the Holy Spirit doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about his ministry. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you cannot serve me without the Holy Spirit. You must have the Holy Spirit. In fact, didn't he say, without me you can do? Okay. And so he says, I'm going to give you the Spirit. The Spirit will help you. The Spirit will empower you. The Spirit will enable you to do things even more than what I have done. The Spirit's going to be there. He's never going to, in fact, when I give the Spirit, he's going to be where? In you forever. And now he's repeating it again this same evening for about the fourth time he's talking about the comfort of the Holy Spirit, which again drives me to the thought that you and I need to be more involved with our, in our relationship and our walk with the Holy Spirit of God because that's the key to living the Christian life. And so he's going to tell us that the Spirit is going to help you, especially in the area of John chapter 15, 16, witnessing. Witnessing and giving it out. It's going to be so tough. The world's going to hate you. The world's going to resist you. But I'm giving the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to help you by doing what? Well, look at the passage. He says, the Holy Spirit, I tell you the truth, it's necessary for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the Spirit will not come unto you. But if I depart, I'm going to send him. When he is coming, he will reprove the world of what? of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and of sin because they believe not of righteousness because they go to the Father of judgment because the prince of the world is judge. In other words, this Holy Spirit is going to point out what's right what's wrong. You're going to stumble. You're going to struggle saying it but he's going to help you. He's going to give you assistance to be the witness to bring the conviction that is needed. He's going to help you by understanding the truth. Where he goes on he says, I have so many things to say to you but you can't bear them. Howbeit when the Spirit has come he's going to guide you into all truth. There, there, there's just so much but I, I'm giving you a brain overload and he says but the spirit will help you do you realize do you realize you cannot understand the word of God without the working of the spirit in your mind do you realize that when you pick up the, when you pick up your bible to read you should be asking the spirit of God to give you direction and guidance do you realize that when we come to church and we have that meditation time at times before the service begins the one of the reasons that that is so important or in some of those moments before the service you should be saying to the spirit of God help me to understand help me to get something out of this help me to learn because without the spirit you're not going to learn you need his tutoring in your life but some of us me okay, more than most of you. Me, I and my arrogancy think that I've had the training and I have the knowledge and I've had the Sunday school and I have the degrees that I can study the Bible without the assistance of the Holy Spirit and I can just get it. And he's saying, no, you can't. In fact, what I'm getting to where, where God is putting me right now at the point of my life is he's helping me to remember how much I need the Holy Spirit because I can't remember it never happens to any of you. But I forget things a whole lot more than what I used to. Okay? I forget where, you know, and again, we're going to go back. You told me years ago the reason that older people don't have babies is they'd forget where they laid them. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I'm finding that as time goes by, there's greater forgetfulness, even in the, even the wonderful things of God's Word. I'm struggling more and more knowing where that passage was. Now, none of you do this, but this is what I do more and more, is it's on this side of the page. 
in this corner, and I just keep on going. I don't. It's in somewhere in the Bible, okay? And it's but it's in that corner. I don't remember the verse, the chapter, or the book, but it's in that corner. And I know I'm the only one in this room that does that. I'm sure. Okay. The point is, the Holy Spirit's ministry to our life, look what he says, he tells us, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into the truth. He shall speak of himself. He not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, that will he speak. And when he shows you the things to come, he shall glorify me. And he goes on, he talks about the, the Spirit. He's talked earlier about the Spirit bringing to remembrance the ministry of the Spirit. We're going to need it. He says, and I'm going to give it to you. And his job is going to help to magnify me. As you do what's right, he's going to help you to do this. And so he goes on and he makes some other comments after he's talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, then all of a sudden it seems like random thoughts just kind of flow out that he just kind of makes comments where he says, a little while, verse 16, and you shall not see me again a little while, and you shall see me because I go to the Father. What? What? You're not going to see me in a little while, and then you're going to see me. What's he talking about? In a little while, you're not going to see me. In a little while, you're going to see me. The death, burial. Okay, he's got, you got it. Okay, that's what he's talking about. He's giving it. And he's going to keep on going, and he's going to make these comments here, and he's blessing him. And the disciples, by the way, they're, they're buff, you know, they're befuddled. Yeah. They're not getting it. They're, they're bouncing around. They said this in verse 17. What is this that he said to us? A little while and you shall not see me. A little while and you shall see me because I go to the Father. What is this that he's saying? A little while. We don't know what he's saying. Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, but he said, do you inquire among yourselves of that thing that I said? A little while you shall not see me. Again, a little while you shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you're going to weep. You're going to lament. But the world's going to rejoice. You're going to be really sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. What's verse 20 talking about? What events? You're going to be really, really grieving, but the world's going to be celebrating. His death. Okay. And then he says, but then your sorrow will be turned into joy. Resurrection. A woman is in travail. She has a lot of sorrow. Okay. Uh, Because her hour has come. We're talking about a woman who is in labor. Yeah, with child. Yeah, she's usually not really excited to party at that moment. You don't make jokes at that moment. You don't say, hey, the next time. Yeah, not during those moments. Yeah. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers not the anguish, but what comes back. The joy that the baby's here and everything's gone well. Okay. You now, therefore, have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Your joy shall no man take from you, take from you. and in that day you shall... Add. Okay. What is he telling them? He's telling them that the sorrow that you're going to experience is limited. It's going to be turned into joy, and that joy is going to be lasting. It's going to come back. It's going to come back. By the way, is this a helpful thought to tell people who are going through severe trials that these trials are temporary. You know, that they, they will, one day it will be done. And so he's telling them that. And then he gives them another encouraging statement. He says, by the way, I will answer your prayers. Even though those times of persecution and difficulty, he says, he goes on, he says, whatsoever you shall ask in the Father in my name, I will do it. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your what? Your joy may be 
Yeah, I have full. Anybody have something different? The word literally is not just full to the top. It's the idea. Yeah, it's overflowing. Good. And then he says, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time comes that I shall not speak where it's, where, you know, it's, it's hard to understand, but I shall show you plainly. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray to, and I say not the Father for, him, for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And so he's talking, and he's reassuring him, God loves you. Even though you're going to have these problems, God hasn't turned against you. The persecution doesn't mean God's abandoned you. He really cares for you. He really loves you. And then he concludes this whole section by the disciples. They say, hey, we're starting to understand what he's saying. Um, and he says to them down verse 40, 32, Behold, the hour comes. It's now here. You're going to be scattered. Every man to his own. You're going to leave me alone. Okay. Uh, when does that occur? The garden. The garden, right. They all, they all bail on him. Okay, they leave. And he says, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone because who's with me? Yeah, and he goes on. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you're going to have problems, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And he tells them the bad news. This is the point. I'm telling you all this bad news to help you. So you stay strong, Okay. Hey, let, let, let me see if I can give you a, a dumb analogy. Dumb analogy. We're sitting and we'll do premarital counseling with somebody. And while we're doing premarital counseling, I'm going to tell them, once you get married, there's never a problem. You will get along so good. It will be the most wonderful experience. You will be, every day will be like a honeymoon. It's going to be wonderful. He will treat you like a queen every single day. No matter what you look like in the morning, he's going to drool over you. And she will cook you the best meals. It's going to be the most wonderful thing. You, everybody should get married right away. You shouldn't wait. And then when you have kids, you think life is great now. When you have kids, those kids will bring so much joy to you. They will, they, you will never feel tired. You will never feel exhausted. You, they, will, they will just, and they will obey your every single word. Why are you giggling? Because when you say, I do, here it comes. Okay. And we're, we're not trying to say that every day is bad, but are there challenges after you get married? Yeah, you thought there were challenges before. You thought there was challenges when you were preparing the wedding. Wait until afterwards. Okay. There's going to be more challenges. And when you get that good news, yay, we're going to be parents. We're so excited. About two days after you bring the baby home from the hospital, you want to put the baby back. Because <laughs> you're tired. You're exhausted. Do babies wear the moms out physically? Yeah, but you wouldn't change it. But are there challenges? Yes or no? Yeah. And so we're not saying that it's going to be all all evil. We're saying there's a reality check here. Marriage, having kids, wonderful, wonderful. But at the same time, there's going to be challenges. And if we didn't tell you the honest truth that there's going to be challenges, you would think something's wrong with you. You would think that because you as a young mother are sitting there in the middle of the night crying and saying, what am I doing wrong? That this baby keeps waking up you would think something's wrong with you. Okay? 
The reality is they're going to do that. You're going to lose sleep. There's going to be those difficulties. You're going to have those stressed out moments. That's part of the process. It doesn't mean you're evil or this is evil or the child is evil. Okay? This is the way life works. Jesus is saying, when you join me, you wed me, you become my children, there's going to be difficulties. You can still have joy. You can still have peace. It is still going to be a wonderful experience for you by following me. And I want you to have your head on straight and realize that it's going to come to an eventuality that everything will work out for good. And that's a very important thing. Now he's finished his sermon. He's all done giving them the lecture. And we go into chapter 17. Look at chapter 17. And what does it say? What is chapter 7? Summarize chapter 17, 1, just looking at it. What does Jesus do now? Instead of lecturing, what does he do? He prays. This is now he turns his attention from talking to the disciples. He turns and talks to whom? The Father in heaven. Okay, so John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, where we call it the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. It, the, John 17 really is the essential Lord's Prayer. This is where he's going to really lay it out. But before we get into it, let me just finish today with this. Loving Christ and other believers will not mean we're going to be loved by everybody. Okay, that's a life's reality. Okay, we, life's reality. When we serve Christ like he wants us to, we enjoy greater intimacy with him, but also greater opposition from the world. That's a life's reality. Okay, it's going to happen. Don't be surprised, therefore, by negative responses from family and friends to your faith. He's saying, we're going to get that. They may not understand. They may not like what you're doing. They may not like the fact that you pray before the meal because that shows them up. You're not intending it to, but it kind of does. It is normal and natural for the unsaved to oppose Christianity and what it stands for until they embrace it. We know this. We should not be surprised at how mean and vindictive we might be treated by the lost people because of our beliefs and Christian behaviors. Your, your ethics at work, your honesty at work, could that upset your co-laborers? Yes or no? Yes, because you're ethical. You're ethical, okay? And you're being honest, and you won't lie on a report or on a paper or on a deal. That might affect somebody's pocketbook. They could get pretty ticked about that. And so he goes on, we go on. We, and we live like Christ. Our very lives will be a light into the dark deeds of the lost around us. Okay, we don't do it er with arrogance. We just know that this is going to be some of that reality that as we mirror and reflect Christ, we will expose evil, we will make the ungodly feel somewhat uncomfortable even though we're not purposing to do that. There is no need to feel guilty about or try to diminish the uncomfortableness of an unsaved person that they may feel to their guilt. Okay, okay, I've got unsaved neighbors and therefore because when they talk and they use profanity and this happens, they use profanity and I don't say anything about the profanity but I just make comments and you can tell there's that twinge like, hmm, I shouldn't have said those words. Oh, well, I don't want them to feel uncomfortable so I'll cuss right with them. No. No. No, okay. Because I won't go to the same spot or tell the same dirty story as them or even laugh at a very dirty story because of testimony's sake and, and even if it's funny, and it's humorous. I want to be cautious not to laugh. Okay? Because of the cause of Christ. And so I respond by not laughing, trying to just say, hmm, you know, there's other things we were talking about. 
oh, well, I don't want them to feel bad about it, so I'll just get and participate in their joke and in their story. No. Opposition should never dissuade us from being a witness for Christ, nor become an excuse from not remaining loyal. When dealing with discouraged witnesses, people who are witnessing, remind them of the need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Remind them the reason the opposition is there. It's not them. It's because of Jesus Christ. This isn't personal against you. It's because of your faith in Christ. Bottom line is this. Suffering opposition for our faith, it's an honor. It's an honor to be identified with Jesus Christ. It is helpful and important to repeat multiple times the promises of God, like the Holy Spirit. Just say it time and time again. You can never, we can never say it too often to our kids, to one another, that God will answer our prayers, that the Holy Spirit is with us, that God gives us peace that passes all understanding. Jesus is the conqueror. These simple truths he has said now four or five times in this same lecture. What does that tell me? You and I should give in to repetition of really important, encouraging truths. Let's pick up in the John 17 next week.